Well, I asked you to pay attention to a couple of things as I read, um, those two things being the straightforward moral obligations that the text requires of you and our church, uh, and also the things that feel out of place in our current context, almost as if it was written for another time. Uh, the structure for today's sermon is mainly around that first thing, the straightforward moral obligations required of you and our church. And as we look at that, I'll also try to address those other things that make this feel like it's from another time and place. Things like, for example, uh, perhaps most obviously, the apparent abundance of widows. They're a whole category, especially young widows and especially young rebellious widows. Uh, there's also that reference at the very end to bond servants and the structures of slavery that seem very foreign to us now, although we, we know of those things. Uh, and then there's the more general vibe uh, that isn't so familiar today, the more general vibe that it's up to the church to provide welfare for needy people. Uh, these things feel like, as I said, they're from another time and place, uh, partly because they are written in another time and place, uh, from a different person to another person, from Paul to Timothy, who uh, these guys occupied a different time and place from our own. But I will suggest that the instructions and principles are just as applicable to our current time and place, even if we have to do a little bit of interpretation to see how it maps onto where we are today. As I said, the structure for today's sermon is mainly around the first thing, that the, the straightforward obligations and instructions that appear in the text. Uh, and the key word for that is honour. Show honour. Show honour where it's due. Uh, and then it talks about exactly how to show honour uh, and also recognising with God's guidance where honour is truly due because our own radar can easily get thrown off by things like favouritism or celebrity or self-interest and we can direct our honour in places that it, it doesn't really belong. Uh, these, vicious, these verses dish out a series of really straightforward instructions to show honour according to a series of things. Uh, according to age in verses 1 to 2, uh, that, that big chunk um, in, from verses 3 to 16, according to show honour according to vulnerability and need, uh, according to your family circle, according to spiritual office and debt, uh, and according to things like inherited authority, or at least that's what I'm calling it. Uh, so first, age. Uh, this is from verses 1 and 2. This is about acknowledging a natural order of relationships, treating older and younger people with appropriate respect. Uh, but it's a natural order that uh, we're often... It's a natural order, but it's an order that we're often naturally inclined to turn upside down. Paul's instruction to Timothy in these first verses is about how he should carefully exercise his authority in the church, particularly in light of the corruption that surrounds him and particularly in light of his own young age. Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him, as you would a father, younger men brothers, women mothers, younger women as sisters. Uh, later on in this chapter, in the section that we briefly skipped over, Paul does tell Timothy to rebuke elders, uh, even though he says here to not rebuke older men um, in some circumstances. And I think common sense tells us that when Paul tells Timothy not to rebuke an older man here in verses 1 and 2, Paul is telling Timothy not that older men never require rebuke and that it should never, ever, ever be done. Um, 
and that Timothy's jurisdiction as church leader only extends to people who are younger than him. He's not saying that. Paul is instructing Timothy, I think it's quite obvious, that his default practice towards older men and women should be one of respect that's worthy, that's due them because of their age. And that if rebuke should be necessary to someone older, then it should be carefully and prayerfully considered and it should come first in the form of encouragement, followed by the increasing steps of severity uh, if that need should unfortunately arise. Uh, what's really interesting though in these verses that are up here, although it's not really surprising by this stage of having looked at 1 Timothy over a series of weeks, is the family language uh, that Paul uses to back all this up. See, he doesn't exactly say treat older people with respect because they're older and wiser and treat younger people gently because they're more delicate. He says treat older people with respect because they are family. And treat younger people with respect because they are family in Christ. And so I should point out that Paul is saying this goes for fellow Christians, other people in the church. These are your brothers and sisters. Uh, the older men are, your, are as your fathers and, and the older women as your own mother. He's not giving a license to be disrespectful and overbearing to your neighbours and strangers outside the church. Uh, he's simply saying respect begins in the home but that's only where it begins. Uh, now, in society, this natural order of respect according to age can swing both ways and sometimes we turn it upside down. It's fairly universally acknowledged. Older people should be respected and listened to because of their years and experience. But it's also fairly universal practice to scoff at older people and dismiss them and even sometimes abuse them and even sometimes to wish for their death. Uh, peers of the same age, well, they make natural, natural friends. There's natural respect dynamics that, that can exist there naturally. But peers of the same age can make pretty cruel and poor leaders if we allow ourselves to be led by their opinions uh, and their worldliness. And also peers of the same age can also become prey at times. It's all too common for people to use their natural peers for things like uh, sex or to use people for the feeding of their ego. And then if we look at people younger again, it's fairly universally acknowledged that children are precious and vulnerable and ought to be treasured and protected. Uh, but in some modern parenting circles, it's demanded that children should be obeyed or followed rather than lovingly led. Now, can you see how that's turned upside down? Children are put up ultimate. But then on the flip side, children are also all too commonly abused and neglected. And so we're, we're invited and pointed to acknowledge uh, this appropriate family uh, and age dynamic. What we must do as Christians is acknowledge the natural order of respect, treat older and younger and same age people with appropriate respect and purity, particularly when it comes to fellow Christians, as a start, because we belong to the same family. according to vulnerability and need. Now, this is the big chunk, uh, and so probably where we're going to spend the most time this morning. But these verses uh, make up the extended discussion about widows. And it makes up part of a broader picture about caring for all those uh, who are vulnerable and in need. 
And Paul makes this interesting distinction in verse 3 and throughout. He says that we should honour widows who are truly widows. What's the difference between a widow who is truly and not truly? Well, he explains that. But I take this to be a distinction based mainly around their need, but also around whether or not they're a Christian. Uh, And I'll talk to that in a moment. I flagged at the start, this is one of the passages that makes it feel like a whole other world. Uh, The apparent abundance of widows, especially young widows, especially young rebellious widows. Let me explain uh, that in a few different ways. There's a difference in time and place, uh, but there's also a general theme. So in the time that Paul was, was writing, widows were more common and were more vulnerable. Now, women have always lived longer than men, always, for at least three reasons. War, dangerous jobs, and risk-taking behaviour. A few things have shrunk that gap for us today. We don't have swathes of young men disappearing to war, at least not in our culture, not now. More men are in less dangerous jobs, but... Because of the risk-taking behaviour of men, or uh, uh, men are still more likely to pursue dangerous hobbies, take gambles on our health by either overindulging or neglecting checkups. Uh, and so men don't live as long as women. There's more widows than widowers. But think back to first century Palestine and Greece. Men were dying substantially younger than their wives. There's also a difference in place. As you read the whole of 1 Timothy, you do get the vibe... There was a particular cultural phenomenon in the Ephesian setting, uh, which, uh, which is difficult to untangle when all we have is this letter. But it does seem that there was a critical mass, an unusual critical mass of young women who were vulnerable, who were le- easily led astray, who were disruptive and also sexually promiscuous. Um, It feels very much as if there's a particular cultural thing that Paul thinks needs addressing. And I think that's why he particularly calls out the bad behaviour of young widows, because there seems to be a group or a band, Um, not that that's the norm across every time and place. But there's also this theme that makes it uh, worthy of attention. Widows are used throughout Scripture as an example of vulnerability. I'll give you just two simple examples, but there's loads, okay? Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the sojourners, he upholds the widow and the fatherless. James 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Widows are used as an example of vulnerability. References to widows press the theme of Scripture that vulnerable people have God's special care and attention and should have his people's special care and attention. So it's not only widows. I think that there's a theme in here that we need to draw out. What must we do? Paul says to Timothy that widows should be honoured in verse 3, and cared for in verse 16. And I think honoured and cared for, I think he's meaning essentially the same thing. Uh, We should honour widows at least by making sure their material needs are attended to. We should honour all people who are poor or vulnerable by at least making sure their material needs are attended to. 
Uh, In the book of Acts chapter 6, it talks about this being a very early practice in the church. Uh, In the very first years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, there was in place in the church a structured, what they called a daily distribution of provisions for widows and other needy people within the church community. You can read that in Acts chapter 6. It was a structured, organised, determined effort to supply the needs uh, of people in the church family. Uh, Already a very large, cumbersome church family, actually thousands of people. Uh, One of the jarring things, I think, though, about this passage in 1 Timothy is the apparent requirement to assess and scrutinise widows for their for their validity is this a true widow or not Uh, he talks about widows who are truly widows describing what would make a true widow as well as what would disqualify someone from making the list or the cut things that make someone a true widow according to this passage is that she is left all alone that she prays night and day that she's not less than 60 years of age that she's been the wife of one husband, that she has a reputation for good works. Things that would... ...children or grandchildren. Uh, She is self-indulgent, in verse 6. Has become an idol or a gossip or a busybody, in verse 13. Or if she's quite young or if she's already had an opportunity to remarry. Uh, Let me show you something, though, that I think is really important for understanding how to apply this uh, and other things like this. Notice that these aren't two puzzle pieces that click neatly together with no gap in between. It's not like every widow is going to be either all of this or all of that. Can you see that? For example, it is possible for a widow to have children or grandchildren but to still be effectively left all alone because her one child is disabled or there is no family nearby or or her family itself is poor and in no position to provide for her. Uh, It is possible for for a widow who is over 60 to remarry. It is possible for an older, truly alone widow to get in strife through gossip, slander or see how you know there's a bit of give and a bit of play all around here and 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 also almost everything every individual thing on this list of requirements exists on a spectrum so if you look at the stuff down the left hand side um alone well is that an absolute thing or is that a spectrum thing some people are more alone than others surely everyone can recognize that you can be more or less prayerful Age exists on a spectrum, on a line. Uh, Good works. Even marital history. You know, it says the the wife of one husband. Even marital history exists, exists on a moral spectrum with promiscuity at one end and absolute faithfulness at the other and then all sorts of thousands of complicated um, variations in between. But, you know, a spectrum in which even past promiscuity can be redeemed and forgotten by repentance and the grace of God. And so that doesn't, I don't see how that could disqualify someone because they made mistakes merely in the past. So we are being asked to make assessments of people, not just widows but all people, making assessments and categorising them but with the aim of loving them in the appropriate way. And also with the aim of managing our own limited resources. How do we know where to direct the things uh, 
where it's needed. Paul says in verse 9, he says to enrol the true widows who meet the requirements. And I understand the requirements uh, to be summarised in essentially two columns. First, there is financial need and then all that moral stuff um, I, I take to be a description of actually just, is this a Christian person? Is she a member of the church? Um, not has she reached a threshold of good works, but is this person actually a Christian? Is this actually a, a, a sister or, in other cases, a vulnerability, a brother or sister in Christ? Financial need is the point of things like left all alone without family. Uh, 60 years of, old, of age or older is based, I think, on their capacity to return to work. Um, Today, we might ask different questions like, uh, what's this person's claim to things like life insurance and superannuation or assets, savings, eligibility for pension, the number of dependents? It's all in the same vein of assessing someone's true need. Now, this is tricky, right? Um, And and it requires being personal. uh, But uh, it's just the case that some people who are alone are materially very well provided for. And so... You know, throwing one or even $10,000 at some people will make no material difference to them at all. What that person is really going to need from the church is companionship and purpose. Do notice this, by the way, that um, we think of widows quite naturally as people who are in need of emotional uh, support in a time of grief. This is not how the passage talks about it. It is talking not about an acute period of grief. This is talking about a long, slow steady, reliable provision of care for someone who is in need. One of the jarring aspects of these requirements that Paul lays out is, you know, it appears as though uh, a widow, or as I say, anyone in need, might have to meet a threshold of good works before she qualifies. Something like earning charity. Well, I I just don't see how that can quite be uh, the aim that we're to you know say is this person good enough to earn our favor i don't see how that can be the point especially when paul is speaking into a faith community in which our salvation isn't earned by good works our salvation is a gift of god's grace that is given to us in our need so we ought to be a people who give with grace to those in need, not because they deserve it or have earned it. To think what Paul is asking the church to do is, in fact, to the best of the church's worldly ability, discern from a person's life and fruit whether or not that person is a truly a Christian. And if they are, then put them on the list. But please remember that no Christian is perfect, and please remember also that this list isn't a hard and fast boundary that means only people on the list get favour because the church has been famous since its institution 2,000 years ago for being generous to people beyond their own walls as well. That is absolutely also our imperative and our command. But Paul's not talking actually about that at the moment. He's saying that we ought to care for our own. We ought to love and support our own. And part of this is evangelistic, by the way, as you read that passage, uh, you'll see that part of this is, is about, uh, about acquiring the respect of outsiders. As people from the outside look in and see us care for our own, they will see that there is something good and beautiful in what Christ has done for us. 
If, on the other hand, people from the outside look in and see, oh, we're a community of people who abandon people in their need, well, who who would want to be a part of that? Certainly not a needy person. And we ought to be a, you know, in some respects at least, a a church ought to be a hospital for those who are sick and suffering and, and, and needy. There's this obligation to family circle as well. Uh, and it's really clear in here, there's, there's three verses in particular uh, that are littered throughout that stuff about widows that, that points out that uh, you have a duty to your family. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first, that's the children or the grandchildren, let the children or grandchildren first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. If your father or mother is left all alone, then you have a duty to your father or mother. Now, even if your father or mother, uh, maybe your parents are still uh, both alive, but they're ageing, you have a direct duty of care to them. Do you see how severe this is in verse six, uh, verse 8? If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially the members of his household... Notice that Paul is quite naturally using the word household in two different ways. There's, there's a natural household, the, you know, the one, the family that you're born into, and then there's this other household, uh, this metaphor household of, of the church uh, and God's extended family. Uh, but here he's clearly talking about uh, your own immediate family that you were born into. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you do not care for your own family, you are no longer considered, according to Paul, and probably according to God, a believer. You have abandoned the faith because you've abandoned it at the absolute first principles. You haven't even been able to show due respect and honour to the person who brought you into the world. And then it says in verse 16, um, it, it, it sort of follows uh, that same theme. Uh, I want to make a comment about uh, aged care facilities. Because it's different now, right? This is the, the different time and place kind of thing that we've got going on. Uh, they didn't have facilities back then uh, in the same way that we have them now. Uh, I would say... Uh, I've seen a number, a good number of Christian people refuse to send family into aged care facilities uh, and instead make allowances and sacrifices to invite uh, ageing parents into their own home. And don't get me wrong, that is is a serious need um, and a great sacrifice. I've only ever seen that appear as a great family sacrifice to bring uh, an ageing and high-need person back into the family home. But it's a good thing to do. Now, there are times where the needs of a person actually are beyond your capacity or the distance is too great or something. And so we have facilities and I think it's a good, I think it is a social good thing that we have things like Avalon just down the road for aged people in care. Let me tell you 
uh, something I have observed in my few years. Um, if you speak to people who have lived in or had family members in Avalon, and I'm not making a comment about Avalon, I'm just making a general comment that I think anyone could observe, you will hear mixed reviews. People, some people will say it's terrible, some people will say it was wonderful. I will tell you what I've observed from the people who said it was wonderful. Um, so, uh, Stella, 101-year-old lady who, uh, whose funeral I conducted a couple of months ago. Um, she was in there for years and she loved it and she was loved. But her family didn't kick her in there. Her family visited her almost every day. She had visits from family. Now, in a place that is dealing with a lot of people with very high needs, um, it, it is only natural, it, it, it is impossible, right, that some people aren't going to slip through the gaps and that some people are going to get pe- better care than others. And it shouldn't happen, but it does. But it's really hard to give bad care to a person whose family members are in the room almost every day. Really hard to neglect that person. Because, you know, there is just a a loving safety net already surrounding them. And so, yes, it is, I think it is a social good thing that we have facilities like this to care for people who are in great need. But do not think that because you're a Christian, uh, because you're a Christian person who lives in the modern era, uh, you get to uh, boot your parents into that sort of thing. Um, if you're going to, if you are forced to use that sort of thing, then use it and, and attend to your family and love them and support them. And they will you increase their probability of getting excellent care. It is... Um, uh, the Bible, I think, lays out principles for uh, where welfare belongs and, and whether or not uh, we should depend on it or look for it. I want to make just a comment about welfare. If you are young enough right now, your goal in Christ and in obedience to God and his commands, is to, if at all possible, not ever need welfare. Not ever need to depend on the government or the church to supply your material needs. And most of you are young enough to already set those wheels in motion. Um, The Bible tells us to be good stewards of our resources. Um, and to uh, and even at times it, it talks about having enough left over at the end of your life to leave an inheritance to your children and others. You should be trying to leave with more than what you began with, mostly. All right. That's not possible or achievable or achieved by everyone. So the next layer out from that, if you if if you haven't been able to supply uh, and, and plan for your own needs, then the, ideally you would be able to depend on your own family and children. Let me say this. Stay married. Broken families do not support each other as well as families that are together. You do not plan for your own aged care by fragmenting your family and family relationships. Do all that you can 
to keep things together. Be a peacemaker. And if you are young and you have older family members in need, you have an immediate obligation to, to care for them. And then after that, so plan to prepare for yourself and your own needs. Plan to keep your family together and in love. And then beyond that, there is a safety net. And there should be. And back in the time that Paul wrote, the safety net was really only the church or your friends. Um, We are fortunate today that there is a welfare system, but guess what that's based on? That that has grown out of uh, the Christian principles that our society has taken on. And so um, that is a good thing, but it's complicated things. Uh, because it is, it's harder sometimes to, to identify the need uh, that's out there. It's hard to know what, you know, where someone else's support structures that are being provided by the government end and what holes there are to fill. Uh, but there's still almost always holes. Uh, but we as a church family do need uh, to be on the lookout uh, for need and to support one another. I'll say something else now because I... I, I um, I didn't look at our gospel reading before today. So I'm actually going to finish on this point now because I, I just can't get to the other things in time. Um, but, um, uh, but in Luke chapter 14, I wonder if you notice, oh, I'm talking about family and supporting family. In Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus says something about hating your family. So as I said, I didn't prepare for this, but I actually deliberately wasn't going to mention this Um, just because, although it's important, it it complicates the simplicity of the point. But we've got to do it now. Luke 14 was at the end of the chapter. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, what on earth? Jesus is saying you must hate your father, mother, brother, sister. And then Paul is saying a decade or two later, um, you must love your family first uh, and then church family second and then neighbours, etc. after that. Why does Jesus talk about hating your family? He's talking about... uh, He's using emotive and extreme language to draw out an order of priority. Who is your number one priority to? Is it to God? Is it to Christ? Or is it to your family? 99 times out of 100, there is no conflict in that scenario. Your devotion to God requires that you, as a child, honour your parents and you, as a parent, love and honour your children and that you, as a sibling, love and respect the people in your household. That's what God requires of you. There is no tension between loving and honouring and obeying God and loving the family that he's given you. 99 times out of 100. But do the people Jesus was speaking to, conflict was about to arise because these were people who were going to choose to follow Christ and their own family would discard them because of it. So he's not saying to them, he's not saying... Jesus isn't saying, discard your family for me. 
He's saying, when you choose me, your family may discard you. And if that, even if it comes down to that, who are you going to choose? You choose me. And you let your family discard you, but that's on them. And that doesn't, by the way, then mean that you get to cast them off and draw a line and say there's no way back. You, you cut me off, so I cut you off. No, I, I think your obligation still stands to, uh, to love and honour your parents uh, and, uh, and to respect and supply for family members in need. I, I think that stuff all still well and truly stands. But because of what it means to follow Christ and because of what, how other people may view you, you need to be prepared to become an enemy even of your own family. But in Christ uh, and according to his command, um, you have a duty absolutely to love and support your own family. Hey, it looks like next week's sermon is already half written because I am going to finish there. Skip, 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 skip. Um, what to say in summary? Uh, it's just bound to be true, isn't it, that all of us have failed in some ways to uh, give honour where it's due. Uh, it's also going to be true that some of us have misdirected honour to places where it's not due uh, because, you know, you honour someone who you think you might get something from instead of honouring someone that, uh, you, uh, that needs your aid. So we need to repent for that. We need to redirect uh, and, and direct our honour where it's due. Uh, we should, as a principle, recall with thankfulness the honour that Christ has shown us. God has honoured you by giving you, in your need, his own son, in fact himself. Let that model of giving honour be the model that flows out of you as you give honour then to others uh, in need, as a principle of grace. Uh, and let us honour first Christ and in him honour others. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we do confess uh, that although the natural order of, of uh, honour and where it's due uh, is, um, is before us, uh, we do get uh, distracted. Uh, we uh, we are drawn by favouritism to one of those uh, with wealth, uh, to one of those who might give us something in return. And we thank you for this uh, corrective step uh, that encourages us to uh, give honour where it's due, particularly where it's needed. Uh, help us to be a family of people who uh, are faithful to our own. Help us to love and support one another and to treat each other uh, as true family members. Help us when it comes to the crunch uh, to be uh, willing and joyful in making uh, provision for our own family members, uh, particularly ageing parents. Help us when we are young to take what necessary steps we can to be good stewards of the resources you've given us. Help us in all things to depend on you uh, with faith. Amen.